Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you doing today? I hope that you're okay. I am okay, I think. Still haven't had anything to eat yet today, so who knows? This could either go really well or really badly. But I have just phoned a restaurant to book a lunch for two people for like a Christmas lunch. It's not, it's not even in the week leading up to Christmas. And we've got to give our food choices like two weeks before we sit down. I am deeply troubled by this. Why should I decide so many weeks in advance what I am going to eat? I might change my mind. I don't like that. I'm Yes. Do, do you find that? Increasingly so. I mean, every other time of the year, they have the same number. Sorry, I'm ranting now, but bear with. They have the same number of people in the restaurant that they have at any time. It's not like they suddenly create extra tables and chairs and have more people in. Yet you have to decide weeks in advance what you're going to eat. No, I'm sorry. There might be a day when I want to eat a whole plate full of Brussels sprouts and chestnut stuffing. But there might be another day when I absolutely don't and I want to eat some fish. How can I decide in advance? And, you know, I might say, oh, well, let's have a traditional Christmas lunch and get there and then Suddenly I've had other Christmas lunches that week and I don't want another Christmas lunch. So I have an issue with this. Why I understand if I'm booking a table for 20 people and we're all descending at the same time, that's fair game. But to ask me, one of two, to decide if I want a volivant or not on the day, weeks in advance, I'm sorry, I'm not having it. I'm fuming. Anyway, what I'm not fuming about today are the books because we have got... Oh, we've got some great books. Can't wait to tell you about them. We have got The Year of the Locust by Terry Hayes. And Terry is coming on to tell us all about that book. Then we've got The Leftover Woman by Jean Kwok. And Jean is coming on to tell us about that book. I'm also going to review Sweet Pea by C.J. Scus. I'm sorry, I apologise. I should know how to pronounce that. Volume 6 of Spy Family by Tatsuya Endo. And also a book I did for book club. This is a strange one. The book is entitled That Time I Got Drunk and Saved a Demon by Kimberly Lemming. Yes, quite a selection. Oh, and I must also mention we've got a Christmas book club on the Quick Book Reviews Facebook group. You'd be ever so welcome to join us. We're doing, we've had a vote and the chosen book is called The Christmas Murder Game by Alexandra Benedict. And we're going to be reading it a little bit each week over December. Probably have to cram it into three weeks rather than four, just because I imagine people are going to be a bit busy nearer the end of December. But yes, no pressure. Just come and join us. Have a chat. Whether you read it or not, you'd be very welcome. Anyway, we need to get started. And started we will The Year of the Locust by Terry Hayes. Now, if, like me, you loved I Am Pilgrim, we've been waiting 10 years for the next book. And I think it is a wait worth waiting for, if that even makes sense. I love this book. There's some, it takes you in some different directions that I wasn't expecting. And, and I really enjoyed it. I just went with it and thought, yes, lovely. And the ending, my word. Anyway, let me read you the blurb. If, like Kane, you're a denied access area spy for the CIA, 
then boundaries have no meaning. Your function is to go in, do whatever is required and get out again by whatever means necessary. You know when to run, when to hide and when to shoot. But some places don't play by the rules. Some places are too dangerous, even for a man of Kane's experience. The badlands where the borders of Pakistan, Iran and Afghanistan meet are such a place where violence is the only way to survive. Kane travels there to exfiltrate a man with vital information for the safety of the West. But instead, he meets an adversary who will take the world to the brink of extinction. A frightening, clever, vicious man with blood on his hands and vengeance in his heart. Oh my goodness, I love this book. Anyway, let's talk to Terry now. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Terry Hayes to talk to us about his latest remarkable book that I just finished yesterday, The Year of the Locust. Terry, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad that you said it's remarkable. Uh, that may be praise or it may not. Let's find <laughs> out. <laughs> yes, remarkable in a good way, definitely. <laughs> okay. But for those who haven't yet acquired this book, can you give us a bit of a summary of The Year of the Locust? Yeah, it's a spy thriller, which uh, Pilgrim was too, but... The main character in Pilgrim was a disaffected loner, a bit of a sociopath who went on this journey and ended up doing something of importance for the world. And But he didn't have any relationships and he was, he'd had a very troubled upbringing and that, and they became completely insufferable as far as I was concerned. I didn't want to spend any more time with him. I thought, my God, is this guy miserable. <laughs> And that, and I'm a naturally depressive person. I thought I can't spend another six or seven hundred pages with him. So when it came to doing a new novel, of course, there'd been a lot of pressure to do Pilgrim Two at that stage, but I decided I want to do something different, uh, still in the same genre. But so I gave Kane, who—that's his code name. I'm not giving away too many plot points to say that his real name is Ridley Walker which is a hot tip to a book by Russell Hoban called Ridley Walker and a great novel, Re difficult novel, but a great novel. And uh, he has, he's, he died, uh, Russell Hoban, but I did have the honour of meeting him before that event. And uh, yeah, a really great book. So when it came to giving Cain a real name, I thought here's a chance to pay back something and so Cain has a family. He has, he's in a committed relationship with a woman. They're not married, but they, the story is how it tells how they met and that, and how they became a couple and how she does not like his work. Who would? I, I mean, he's a denied access area spy and he goes into areas which are totally forbidden. Iran, Russia, Yemen, Saudi, anywhere where life is really bad. So he, she is not in favour of this way of life. She becomes pregnant and she becomes less in favour of it. But he undertakes a mission and it, she finally understands how important it is. And I think one of the better moments in the book Few and far between, probably, but you never know. Maybe I got lucky. One of the better moments is where she finally says to the head of the CIA, send him. Yeah, make him go. And the head of the CIA says, but you were always the person who was saying what terrible things we do. She said, I never understood what the stakes were. And he says, that's the problem with the secret world. If we're doing our job, nobody ever does. And that it's the story of these two people, but of course, it's also the story of trying to save the world. And hopefully I tried to make it genre busting. I tried to push it out there, both in its plot. And some people I think are going to go for that. And some people aren't. I thought it was a good idea. And what more can I do? And <laughs> but really it's unusual in the spy genre to have somebody who is not the disaffected loner. That, mm. that, that's a trope of, of the genre. So I want to try something different, and, and I did. You did, and you succeeded. It's an oh, well, absolutely brilliant read. I mean, Kane is such a character. Did he stay with you after you'd finished writing it? Oh, yeah, they all do. I hate them. I hate <laughs> them because you're walking down the street and... <laughs> I'm thinking, well, this is what Pilgrim would do, or this is what Kane would do, or this is what the head of the CIA would see when 
I'm, I'm forever conscious and I'm under perpetual surveillance because, oh, that is the reality of the world mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I, after I finished Pilgrim, uh, my wife had read it in, in parts. She'd give it 20 pages and say, what do you think? And she'd always say, oh, it's really brilliant. But sometimes she wouldn't say too much at all and I got the message. <laughs> but uh, when she finally read it all the way through, she was in bed and I went up and I said, what do you think? And she said, it's fantastic. I said, oh, thank you. You know, it's nice to have somebody support you, even if it is insincere. And you never know, <laughs> do you? And so I said, thank you. I said, what do you think of Scott Murdoch or whatever his damn name is? He has so many names and people call him many different things. And she said, oh, he's wonderful. Just mm-hmm. a wonderful character. I said, that's really encouraging. I mean, because I think at the end of the day, so many people read because they believe in the character more than all that sequences and the strange situations and all of that. And I said, that's really wonderful. I said, I'm glad you liked him so much. And she said, of course I did. He's you. I said, oh, come on. Uh, come on. She said, yes. And I said, I don't kill people. I'm not a spy. I'd run away. Uh, I, I said, I'm not misanthropic or antisocial. She says, oh, you are deluded. There's no doubt about that because you are. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. It's really wrong. She said, no. She said, he's got the same sort of sense of humour. He's got that sort of, he occupies forever a moral high ground. And she said, if if you had spent as much, we've been together for 30 years. She said, I've seen it. There's never anything black or white with you. It's always where the difficulty is. And she said, I see that with you and the children when you're talking to the kids and they're saying, oh, such and such, some public figure is a terrible person. We had a recent conversation where they were telling me what an awful person Putin was. So I said, yes, there's no doubt of that. But a very interesting background, really interesting. What happened to his family in the Second World War? I said, this stuff doesn't come from nowhere. You might be an awful person. You might do evil things. It comes from someone. That's what novelists, I guess, try to do. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time with them. I can't escape them. I wish I could, but no, I'm stuck with them. We have to talk about I Am Pilgrim because it's such a hugely successful book and it's 10 years ago it was published. And I don't know if you're aware of... All of us, your very loyal fans, have been going on to book sites and, and looking and it keeps saying the next book will be published soon and then it was delayed. Um, and we're so ecstatic to get The Year of the Locust in our hands and to be able to read it. Was yes. it hard to write, yeah. though, on the back of all that success? Yeah, yeah. I, after Pilgrim came out and it received very favourable reviews generally, except for people on Amazon who... Was, <laughs> Don't hold back. No, that's their right. I, but I write it, they can say whatever they like. The, and then I had some commercial success in that. It was very depressing for me, which is counterintuitive mm. because normally you think I'd be swinging from the chandeliers mm. and drinking beer and flying Skittles and doing whatever. But, you know, all my life I'd wanted to be a novelist. I'd gone into the, I went into journalism, then I went into the writing movies and I had some success at both of those things, but I'd always wanted to be a novelist. And it's that, a Chinese proverb, be careful what you wish for. And uh, what I found was, and I was totally unprepared for this, that I'd done it. I hadn't done it like Hemingway or whatever, but we do the best we can, all of us. And I had this huge hole and I didn't know how to fill. I had fulfilled an ambition of mine uh, to a degree that was was really wonderful. Of course, and enormously grateful for the reading public and for the publishers all around the world who got behind the book and pushed it. But for me personally, it was, it was a very confronting moment. I thought, well, what do I do now? Of course, you write another book. That's harder to do than you might otherwise think, especially as don't want to, I'm not saying commercially, but creatively you don't want to fail. 
And Ray Charles said to Billy Joel, when Billy Joel first hit it big with Piano Man, Ray Charles met him and said, you want to be, make sure of one thing, make sure you love the music you're playing now. And Billy Joel said to him, why? And Ray Charles said, because you're going to play it for the rest of your life. And I, I remembered that and I thought, I don't want to do Pilgrim 2. I, I want to work within that genre because I find that genre interesting, but I don't want to be the Bee Gees tribute band playing Sunday Night Fever for the rest of my life. I want to do something that's different. I want to push out there. I've got this opportunity and I want to try and do something that is really intense, really exciting. And one of the things with Pilgrim was that he was never actually in any jeopardy. Now and again, he was and, uh, and that. But as a general rule, it was more of an intellectual game of, of catching somebody or identifying and catching them and stopping them. And I thought in Locust, there's not going to be anywhere where somebody's not trying to finish him off and that. And so I, I went for that. So it became a very different process. And I wrote a million words. It's at the bottom of my computer screen. In fact, if I ever feel really depressed and really want to go and finish it all off, I'll just go in and look at that screen that says 1,070,000 words. So there's 200, yeah, 240,000, I think, in the book. Wow. I know everybody was annoyed at having to wait for the book. Nobody was more annoyed than me. I can promise you that. As, a, as pissed off as everybody else was, that was nothing compared to, to me. Yeah, I threw out scores and scores of pages about surfacing under underneath the North Pole and what the Russians are doing up there. And my God, everything else that you can think of. And it didn't fit the story. Not the story that I ended up deciding to tell. The books, both books have been extremely research intensive. And when you chuck away 750,000 words, that's just the tip of the iceberg for all the research that's gone into that. But hey, I had the opportunity to both creatively and financially, and I had the support of my family and everything, to, to write a book that, well, I don't know if it's any good, but to write the book that I wanted to write. So I took the opportunity and I did it. And there's a great saying, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you know that I suffered for my art. I really did. Now it's your turn. And uh, so it's a long book. <laughs> I think this is a good point for me to ask if you would mind reading us a little bit from the book. Listeners, please don't be harsh. This is not my day job. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is chapter one. Okay. I once went to kill a man. At other times in younger days, I had followed my work through the neon lit alleys of Tokyo, watched the sunrise over the mosque of the nine cupolas and waited on the waterfront in old Istanbul as a woman's tears fell like rain. This time was way out east where the Aegean Sea runs into the Mediterranean and the Turkish sun beats down on a chain of tiny islands. The smallest of them was also the most remote. Waves broke over the wreck of a freighter lying on a reef. Dangerous currents swirled through hidden coves and a fishing village, its wooden boats long gone, was nothing but ruins now. I landed in late spring, put ashore by the Egyptian skipper of a tramp steamer who was wise enough not to ask many questions. I can still recall the breeze on my face and the heady scent of pine needles as I moved through a silent forest. As I have done for most of my working life, I stuck close to the shadows. My target that day was a brave man, no doubt of it, supposedly a German out of Nuremberg, that beautiful old city steeped in so much dark history. And when I surprised him in the kitchen of his lonely villa, we both knew I had travelled a long distance, both in miles and in years, to arrive at such a deadly rendezvous. I was a member of the agency back then, and for many years had gone under the code name Kane. Five years earlier, the German had been a trusted asset of US intelligence in Tehran. What nobody knew but found out soon enough was that he was secretly working as a contractor for the Russians. It seems like everything is being outsourced these days, even espionage. Oh, 
Wonderful. And to hear you read it, Terry, honestly, that's just diamond. That really is. Oh, Um, you're too kind. You're too (laughs) kind. Uh, And undoubtedly not honest, but go ahead. (laughs) Come on. Let's talk about the ending. We don't want any spoilers, but just, I mean, I just, I hoovered up the book, but the ending, the sort of the end chapters, I was just almost not able to breathe as I was reading them. Did you always know it would end like that? Yeah, I I can't write if I haven't got the first sentence and I don't know what the last sentence is. It's the stuff in the middle that's always been a problem (laughs) between those two points. (laughs) But yes, I mean, with Pilgrim, it was always going to be, there are places I'll remember all my life because that's a line from a Beatles song or it's a thought in a Beatles song. And then I knew that the end words would be, he is risen, the biblical quote. And in a way, he'd come back to life and he'd saved the world, but in a way he saved himself. And so I knew that going in. I just didn't know how to get from one point to the other. In this, I knew that it it would be, I once went to kill a man because I thought, well, that's... You don't normally do things like that. You normally have the guy walk out of a shop and pat the dog and everybody thinks, oh, what a nice man. He likes animals. And that instead of which I once went to kill a man, you think, oh, yeah, all right. And that, But I also knew the end would be riders on the storm. That's all we are and can ever hope to be, riders on the storm. Between those points, it was a long journey for me, long journey for the readers that were waiting, long journey for the publishers. But I, as far as the ending was concerned, I knew that he would have a confrontation and that it would have to be in very extreme circumstances. But I also knew there would be an epilogue because when you read a book of this length, it's never about just the plot. You can't sustain just the plot for this many pages. You have to be engaged with a group of characters. And of course, there's the lead violin, that's Kane, but there's all the other people that are bashing cymbals and playing the trombone or whatever they're doing. You go through this many pages with them, you feel that you've got to know them and you understand, I hope, that what their situation is. And you want to find out what happened. Did they live? Did they die? Where, where did their lives take them? And the epilogue to me was always very important because I could button it and for a lot of these characters. But, of course, once you do something like that, you have to button it for your primary character, for Cain as well. And so I don't think we're giving any spoilers away here, but at the end he, he says what he's learned. And he hasn't learned anything at all, except that the universe and life is a very mysterious thing and all you can do is ride it, ride the wave. And, of course, he uses that much earlier when he's on his way into Saudi Arabia and then from there into Pakistan, from there into Iran. And that, and he looks out at the storm coming in over the Washington of the great monuments of democracy, whatever we might think of America, but they are, it's a wonderful sight. And he sees the storm clouds rolling in and that's when he says, you know, we're riders on the storm. And at the end, he's learned that is the truth in, in a most potent way that, yeah, it's been quite a ride. And if you can survive the ride, and I think that's true of most of us, if you can survive the ride, then it's quite an incredible life, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk research because oh, I read no. this book and believed everything you were saying. I thought, how do you know all of this? Is there a lot of research or does it come to the point where you're just like, no, this is a work of fiction and I will create the world and research my own world? No, I mean, everything in the book is real, except for the things that I made up. Um, oh. <laughs> they're tricky, in my view. The great thing about writing is nobody knows anything. You can do whatever you like, because there are really no rules. I, I mean, who would have ever written a book like James Joyce? I, I, I mean, who would have painted anything like uh, Picasso? 
was a phenomenal draftsman and great artist. But who decided to jumble everything up? I mean, there's no rules. You do what you like. And maybe sometimes it works, maybe sometimes it doesn't. But one of the tricks, I think, of writing a book like this is that you have to tell a million small truths to make everybody believe the one big lie. And the small truth are how a gun works or how a crucifixion, you know, mentioned at quite some length in the book, what a crucifixion really is. It's not an execution. It's death by torture. And researching all that gave me a newfound respect for, you know, for Jesus. I, I mean, anybody that was crucified, I mean, just my God. And that, so you have to get those things right, partly because I know for a fact through Pilgrim, that there's a group of people, God bless them, who read your book with Google open next to them, and they keep a list of everything you get wrong. Now, personally, I would find better things to do with my time. I, I mean, I'd go for a walk in the park, but no, there, there are people that do this, and if I bring them some degree of pleasure by proving that I'm a complete moron, then go with God. That's great. I have to tell get as much stuff absolutely correct as I can to make or to encourage the reader to believe that there really is a denied access area spy called Cain and he really is going on this adventure and he's going to end up in Baco, in Baku in Azerbaijan and from there he's going to go to Baikonur Cosmodrome where Yuri Gagarin was the first man to leave Earth atmosphere and yada, yada, yada. And... And that, so I have to get all that stuff right. Now, some people employ research assistants, and that is probably a, a good thing for them. It's not for me, because I'm not looking for known facts. I am looking for telling details. Now, I could have written 20 pages on Baku, and not, very few people have been to Azerbaijan. I could have written 20 pages about that, and that probably would have got a bit boring. But I did read that at one stage, Baku was the wealthiest city in the world. And I thought, gee, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And so I'd found out why. But then I read about the oil seeping up into through the Caspian Sea and being struck by lightning and surf catching on fire. And I thought, my God, you stand on a beach in Baku and fire surf comes into shore. I thought, you'd do that in a movie, wouldn't you? That nobody's going to forget that, whether they read it or see it. So that became the motif for Baku. Now, a researcher would probably tell you what the population of Baku is and what its agricultural economy is like, or what the Russians did when they decided to come into Azerbaijan in the late 30s, I guess. And they'll give you all of these facts, but they won't tell you about fire surf because it seems trivial, except it's not. It's something that goes to the essence of memory, at least in my view. So that's what you look for. So you, you have to keep digging and digging and find out about these places. If, if I was working in Victorian England, I could have written 50 pages. He could have gone to Venice and everybody would have said, oh, my God, they live on canals? Jesus, there's these palaces, St. Mark's Square. Oh, my God, there's pigeons. And the problem is nearly everybody's been to Venice and those that haven't either don't want to go there or they've seen it on YouTube. And that, so what I'm, so what's the point of me telling everybody stuff they already know? So I have to think up. You know, where the border, how do you cross the border from Pakistan into Iran? What do you see there? Uh, there's a listening post there. It's built on tripods. And I'm thinking this incredible wasteland, this desolate, dangerous, awful area, the tribal zones of Pakistan, lawless, completely lawless, where that meets Iran. And now you're going to meet the revolutionary guards if you're having a bad day. It's all overseen by these incredible structures which are listening as far into the empty quarter of Saudi Arabia. I think, oh, yeah, 
that'll do. That's good. Yeah, that's not, oh, I arrived at Karachi Airport and I said, oh, I'm on my way to Iran. And they said, oh, lane four. And you only get 400 cigarettes. No, it has to be a very different thing. So, yeah, a lot of research. And, of course, you get it wrong. I mean, I know that. There's people who are going to go on Amazon and say, oh, the Walter 32 PI pistol has only got seven shots and this moron has given him nine shots or whatever. Okay. But what's interesting is if you click on the person that left that review and look at what other reviews they've left on Amazon, you may find that they're complaining that a pair of gloves had five fingers, not four. So, you know, you're dealing with people that you can't win with, really. No, in fact, I I have noticed a very interesting thing because Amazon will tell you what other things they've bought. Yeah. And this is, not make a habit of doing this, but I have noticed that the people that, dislike the book and that's entirely their right i mean if i don't want to hear what they think then i shouldn't publish it should i but they tend to be people who've bought the new adapter for the canon 35 mil that is not readily available but they managed to find it on ebay they are people who are very technical They don't dislike the book because of its tech. They are not as engaged emotionally in stories as perhaps a lot of people are. So they read the story and think, oh, yeah, he's doing this and he's doing that, he's doing the other. And it doesn't quite speak to them in the same way that people who are more given to reading things from an emotional perspective. And what you find, and this I find very interesting, the book is written from a very, it's about men in a way. And yet most of the people who seem to have gone for it are women because the book deals with some, both books deal with some fairly intense emotions and women seem to respond to that a lot more than men who are rebuilding a 1968 Mustang from the ground up and need a new piston. Uh, And it's just an observation. I'm not making any judgment on people. It's just how different people are and they bring their own life experience and their own desires and interests to the book. And there's some people you cannot win with. You just cannot. And that's fine. They, I'm sorry that the book didn't work for them or the books don't work for them, but they'll find a book that does. And I probably won't want to read it. Terry, there is something that you can win us with. The last question that I ask every author that comes on, and it's something that we obsess about myself and listeners to the podcast. It's a very important question, Terry. So just take a moment and the question, the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of The Year of Locusts? What is your biscuit of choice? Oh, this is a tough question mm. because anything with chocolate on it. And there's these damn, these European biscuits that are like a normal biscuit on one side and they have chocolate coating on the other side with an imprint of some character on it. I don't know whether it's a... Cavalier or something like that. And I can see the box clearly. And these are are very good biscuits because I love chocolate. I love sweet things. But of course, I'm forbidden to eat them. I'm forbidden because whilst you can see that I I have a boyish, slim figure, this is, I wish, uh, this is not easily found. And so I'm rationed. They're not allowed to be in the house because I'm a bit obsessive and I am not happy until I've finished each packet of biscuits in one sitting. So if there's six packets, I will eat them all. If there's four blocks of chocolate, I will eat the lot. I used to have to go to the supermarket myself and get these and put them in my desk drawer. But, you know, four kids, yeah, they know where stuff's hidden. And that, that was my biscuit of choice. Was I ever satisfied? No, no. 
But now we know, now the truth is revealed why it's taken 10 years to produce a year of the locusts, because your biscuits are rationed, Terry. That, this well, is well, terrible. That, that's right. It's not my fault. It's I'm not innocent. your fault. I know. Exactly. Call, my, call my wife. I, <laughs> I will do. Terry, it's just been an absolute joy to talk to you. And The Year of the Locusts is a fantastic book. Terry, thank you so very much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So let's get stuck straight into The Leftover Woman by Jean Kwok. Here we go. Jasmine Yang thought her daughter was dead at birth. But five years later, after she was taken from her arms, she learns that her controlling husband sent the baby to America to be adopted, a casualty of China's one-child policy. Fleeing her rural Chinese village, Jasmine arrives in New York City with nothing except a desperate need to find her daughter. But with her husband on her trail, the clock is ticking, and she's forced to make increasingly risky decisions if she ever hopes to be reunited with her child. Meanwhile, Rebecca Whitney seems to have it all. A high-powered career, a beautiful home, a handsome husband, and an adopted Chinese daughter she adores. But when an industry scandal threatens to jeopardise not only Rebecca's job but her marriage, this perfect world begins to crumble. Two women in a divided city, separated by wealth and culture, yet bound together by their love for the same child. And when they finally meet, their lives will never be the same again. Let's go and talk to Jean now. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Jean Kwok, who's the author of the book called The Leftover Woman. Jean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to talk to you about this thoroughly splendid book. Can you give us a bit of a summary of it? Well, The Leftover Woman is about what happens in China when a young woman gives birth and is told shortly afterwards that her baby had died. But she finds out a few years later that her daughter had not died, but had been placed for adoption by her husband to a wealthy American couple. And when the novel opens... She has followed her daughter to New York City to get her child back. Wow, what a premise for a book. I mean, it's an obvious question, but how did you get the idea? What made you want to write this book? Well, it was something that's very close to my heart because I also grew up um, feeling unheard and unseen in a very traditional Chinese family that really did prefer having boys to having girls. 
Um, and that's kind of at the heart of what happens to Jasmine is that as a result of the one child policy, males were greatly desired over females. Um, and nowadays there are 32 million more Chinese men than women in uh, China today, which given that the birth rate is 50-50 means we're missing 32 million Chinese women. So um, that was the beginning of my desire to write the story. The one child policy was in place in China for decades, and yet almost no fiction has been written about it. Some nonfiction books, some news articles, but so little. And I just thought I wanted to showcase um, women and our lives and the different ways that women um, deal with their many, many different roles. And this seemed to be the ideal setting. So in writing the book about such an emotional subject, was it cathartic and therapeutic to do it? Or did it actually make you more upset and more angry with what's gone on? I think it was um, difficult in parts, but it was also thrilling to write because I wanted to make this a really wonderful read at the same time. So while there were deeper emotional topics that mean a lot to me personally, it was also a lot of fun just to inhabit both um, Jasmine, the birth mother's character, and Rebecca, the adoptive mother's character. And how did you manage the plot? Did you have lots of pieces of paper stuck to walls? Or, or how did you plan it all? Well, yeah, indeed, The Leftover Woman is hopefully a very propulsive and fun and thrilling read, but it has an extremely complex architecture underneath the surface to make all of the twists and turns work um, so that I know in real time, in real life, everything works. Um, so I, had a, I did do a lot of planning and it was a question of writing forward and then going back and outlining and seeing what I'd done and having multiple timelines. So the timeline of what actually happened in real time and then the timeline of um, the order in which the events are presented to the reader so that it's the most exciting, fun read possible. Well, I think this is a good time for me to ask you to read a little bit from the book. Tell us what you're going to read, if that's okay. Well, I'll read then from the very beginning of the book, just from the prologue. And I'll just read the first two paragraphs, um, if that's all right. So prologue, May 6, 2022. My beloved, I understand that forgiveness may not be possible. Some deeds cannot be undone. I took someone essential from you that last tragic evening. The blood, so much blood. My hands will never be clean again, no matter how hard I scrub. What I was capable of then was only limited by my desire, and my desire could consume the world. Yet now, so many years later, I write to you because we are both ink and paper to each other. I have marked you as you have marked me, and you are written into the language of my soul. When you think of me, you must only remember glimpses, snapshots taken from a speeding train that you then try to piece into a cohesive narrative. Please, let me construct my truth for you, flawed though it must be. My only hope is your understanding, not in the sense of compassion, but simple comprehension. Oh, that's wonderful, Jean. Thank you so much for that. Can you tell me a bit about how you developed the characters? Did you do all of that work before you started writing the book or did you get to know them as the words were written down? I think we always do learn to know our characters better as we are writing. And of course, I had an initial idea of who Jasmine would be, um, you know, seeing as that she came from a background very much like mine and she comes to the U.S., after her child and she has no money and no power. But I also did a lot of thinking about Rebecca, who is a modern, brilliant career woman with a high-powered career, a handsome husband, a beautiful home, and an adopted Chinese daughter she absolutely adores. Um, 
And so I knew who both of the women were initially, but as I wrote them and I, as I saw them make very difficult choices throughout the course of the book, I mean, indeed, the book is about two mothers, two worlds, and one impossible choice. I learned to know them much, much better. And it was really great fun to be able to do that. And did they stay with you when you'd finished writing it? Oh, yeah. I absolutely feel like I know Jasmine and Rebecca and that they are um, dear companions of mine. And it was a part of the book that I wanted to love them both. You know, that it wasn't really one mother's story, but both mothers and that both have a compelling argument for why they should have the child. So then the end, it really is a difficult choice to know who gets the child. And the title is so good, The Leftover Woman. Was it always that for you from the beginning, from when you started writing the book, or did it just happen? Yeah, this was a book where the title was a gift. And um, that's not always the case. There are times when you're just <laughs> desperately searching for a title, any title, all the way down to the finish line. But The Leftover Woman is a reference both to the Chinese government's current propaganda campaign to increase the birth rate, ironically, after having succeeded much too well with the one-child policy. And it's a term shaming modern women of a certain age who have not married and have children. And that ripe old age is late 20s of all things. So it's a reference to that, but it is also a reference to the ways in which we as women cut ourselves into so many roles into career women, into wife, partner, uh, mother, child, to make ourselves palatable. And yet sometimes it seems like who we truly are is what is left after everyone else has taken what they wanted from us. Yes. It's hard sometimes writing a book that is based in fact, because there's that balance and dilemma between how much fact you include and when you start building on the flesh of fiction? It is certainly a great deal of research. And I made sure that I spoke to people on every side of this equation. So people who had adopted, people who had given up their children for adoption, people who had been adopted and were raised in the West, people who were raised in China and had been abandoned or brought into the family um, after having been abandoned. So I wanted to do, you know, to be fair to every part of the story. Um, but once that's done, it's kind of like, you know, playing tennis. You need the net, you need the guidelines and the boundaries. And the more you have that, the more realistic your world is to your um, readers. So I do quite enjoy having that basis in reality because it becomes a real debate. What is right? You know, what should we do in a real life situation like this? Um, and it makes it, I think, all the more powerful. Did the story end as you thought it would or were you surprised? It was difficult to end the story. And like I said earlier, it is an impossible dilemma. But as the author, I am the one who has to resolve it. And I have to tell you that at some point in the writing process, I think every character in the book was in jail, in bed with each other, or dead. Like I had killed everybody off at some point of the process, trying to figure out how to make this work out in a way that would be surprising and yet right, you know, that felt like an accurate reflection of what I believed. I had one draft where I had killed everybody off and my editor was like, Mom, this is no good at all. So there was a lot of massaging to get the book to the place where I wanted it, where the ending was surprising and yet meaningful and yet grounded and deserved. Um, and where I felt like it reflected a more nuanced view of this entire adoption process. I definitely didn't want the book to come down and say, for example, the birth mother always deserves to have the child or the adoptive mother always deserves to have the child. Because if I've learned anything from all the research is that every single case is different and must be evaluated individually. When you'd finished writing this epic book, Jean, I'm interested, what did you do for the next 
24 hours? Did you just sleep your way through the next 24 hours or celebrate or what did it look like? I did sleep a lot because, (laughs) you know, I was up against the deadline as I always am. And so... um, by the end, it's just tick, 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 tick. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, rewriting and um, trying to just get to those words, the end. And uh, I felt so happy and relieved when it was actually finally done. But of course, that's only the beginning of the end because you go through the book many more times with the editor and by yourself trying to catch all the little bits and to smooth it out. But it is a wonderful feeling when you can actually feel like you've gotten to the end of the story for the first time. Well, we come to the final question, which is the crucial one on this podcast, Jean. So please be warned. And it is what biscuit powered the writing of The Leftover Woman? What was your biscuit or cookie in America? What was your biscuit of choice? Oh, what an excellent question. (laughs) And one I have never gotten before. I do love Oreos. Do you have Oreos in the UK? We do. We do. (laughs) Yes, I, I, I do love them. They are just so reassuring. I love Oreos, but I also love chocolate chip cookies. Mm. So I would have to say those two cookies powered this entire novel. Well, keep eating those cookies, Jean, because it's a super book. It's just lovely to talk to you and hear more about The Leftover Woman. Jean Kwok, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. These are such fun questions. And now let's talk about Sweet Pea by CJ Scoos. I I do apologise. I should know if it's Scuzz or Scoos, but forget how I pronounce the word, just you need to read this book. You really do. I listened to it as an audiobook. I had got it sitting in my audiobook library. I've had it there for a long time. Why had I not listened to it? And I saw that there was another book coming out. I thought, oh, I really like that. And I liked the, the, the book cover. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. And I heard just finished one book and was on yet another long car journey. So I was just like, right, let's go to this one. I think I can guarantee that I'm going to like it from what I've heard. So I just thought, yes, this is what I need to listen to. And wow, let me read you the blurb of this one. The last person who called me Sweet Pea ended up dead. I haven't killed anyone for three years. And I thought that when it happened again, I'd feel bad, like an alcoholic taking a sip of whiskey. But no, nothing had a blissful night's sleep, didn't wake up at all, and for once, no bad dream either. This morning, I feel balanced, almost sane for once. Rhiannon is your average girl next door, settled with her boyfriend and little dog, but she's got a killer secret. Although her childhood was haunted by a famous crime, Rhiannon's life is normal now that her celebrity has dwindled. By day, her job as an editorial assistant is demeaning and unsatisfying, By evening, she dutifully listens to her friends' plans for marriage and babies while secretly making a list. A kill list. From the man on the little checkout who always mishandles her apples to the driver who cuts her off on her way to work to the people who've got it coming. Rhiannon's ready to get her revenge because the girl everyone overlooks might be able to get away with murder. Now, if you're the sort of person that... Can't imagine laughing where murder is concerned, then this might not be a book for you. But for everyone else, you need to read this. You need to listen to it. It is narrated. Oh, mwah. I am literally kissing my fingers. It is perfection. The narration is perfection. The writing is perfection. The kill list that she comes up with are fantastic. And I'm sorry, anyone that squeezes my breath, it's people, when you get food delivered to your home, And the bread they've put on the bottom and then they've put everything else on top. So your bread's all squidged. No, I'm not having that. And people, when you're at the checkout, sometimes they squidge the bread. So you're leaving a mark on my bread there, even though it's wrapped and in plastic. It's changed its shape and I don't like that at all. Not that I would have a kill list, but I do have a list. And if you squeeze my bread, you're going on that list. Anyway, I love this book. I am definitely going to... Probably I'm going to listen to the next one because it was just so great. I can't wait to hear what else happens. It's 
awful and brilliant at the same time. The writing isn't awful. It's just the things that happen. You're just like, oh, my goodness. Thoroughly enjoyed that book. Uh, excellent. You know, very, very good. Thoroughly recommend. So, yes, there's that one. Now, the next one is um, it is book six in the series of Spy Family by Tatsuya Endo. And this is another manga. Get me down with the cool kids. I love this series so much. And uh, OK, here's the blurb on this one. Master Spy Twilight is unparalleled when it comes to going undercover on dangerous missions for the betterment of the world. But when he receives the ultimate assignment to get married and have a kid, he may finally be in over his head. Twilight and Nightfall enter an underground tennis tournament, hoping for an opportunity to obtain an intelligence document that threatens to bring the world to the brink of war. But will their mission be compromised by Nightfall's secret crush on Twilight? Just excellent. Yes, can't wait to read the next one. And then finally, the book entitled That Time I Got Drunk and Saved a Demon by Kimberly Lemming. We did this book as one of my uh, the book clubs that I belong to. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but this was a book that I suggested. To be fair to me, I gave them three options, two of which were very mainstream and that I really want to read. Uh, so I'm going to have to keep suggesting those so we can do those sometimes. So this was my wild card that I suggested. And everyone voted for it. It's one of those TikTok made me suggest it because people are just raving about it. And this book has so many incredible reviews on, yes, dare I say it, after interviewing Terry Amazon. But it's people love it. So I thought, well, there's got to be something good here. Now, we've had the book club meeting and this book scored very highly from a lot of people. I didn't enjoy it, but I know why I didn't enjoy it. There's, there's, it's not just smut. It's not just spice. It's like, if, if you imagine a curry is so spicy, you can't eat it. That's how spicy this book was for me. And it was written in quite a childlike way. <laughs> and yeah, it had all this spice and it's definitely not childlike. I read it once in a cafe and I was slightly concerned that other people sitting in the cafe would know the content of the book and would be saying, oh, I know what you're reading. But if you want something that is like a fantasy book, very spicy and fun and an adventure, then I think you'd love it. So, yeah, this is just it's entirely on me why I didn't. And it, as I say, got some very strong reviews in book club. There were a lot of people in book club that are going to be ordering book two in the series immediately and enjoying it a lot. So it caused there was more laughter discussing this book than we've had in quite a few other books. But if you belong to a very serious book club, uh, then that might not be one to consider. But anyway, there we go. Those are your books. Let's just have a quick recap of what books we've covered today. So we've had The Year of the Locust by Terry Hayes and Terry joined us. It was just wonderful to talk to him about that book. Then we had The Leftover Woman by Jean Kwok and Jean brilliantly talked to us about that fascinating book as well. I've also reviewed, what have I also reviewed? I've also reviewed Sweet Pea by CJ Skuska. Sorry, need to learn how to pronounce your surname. The Spy Family, Volume 6 by Tatsuya Endo. And That Time I Got Drunk and Saved a Demon by Kimberly Lemming. Those are your books. I shall send you on your way next week. It's Christmas, guys. It's Christmas. So I will be joined by Lauren as we each give our... Well, a look on the year, a talk about Christmas, and we each give our five top Christmas books that we recommend reading. Can't wait to do that. Can't wait for you to hear it. And just looking forward to it all. So just take care and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.